Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to Yes UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into the greatest UConn basketball games of all time. Uh, thanks again for listening. We've had a great couple of episodes so far, and we've got another great one today. Tim Fontenot joins the show. He is the longtime UConn men's basketball beat writer for the Daily Campus, uh, currently works for ESPN, and we're talking about the 2014 National Championship game, uh, one of my all-time favorites, and I know one that holds a special place in your heart, Tim. Uh, you were at this game. You covered this team, and uh, I mean, we've in that respect, I guess you and I have kind of always been able to relate. Um, you know, I had a chance to cover the Kemba team in 2011. You got this team. But, dude, I mean, that game. So I got to say, the 2011 game that I covered, it was uh, a lot of fun. It was great that they won. The game was terrible. You got a much better game. This was a great, great game, wasn't it? It was. But, you know, funny thing, I went back because being there, it was really hard to process what was going on. Being able to really take in the game like you were watching it from home, especially where I was. I was behind the students section, and I was behind the CBS set. So it was a little weird for me, but going uh, going back, I went to my story that was in the Daily Campus, and I, rem- I remember this now. I wrote that the second half was very Butler-esque because those teams just couldn't make shots. I mean, part of it was great defense, but... It was such a low-scoring second half. It kind of felt like we were going back to that 2011 vibe. Yeah, Butler-esque, geez. Well, yeah, the only problem was, at least in the Butler game, UConn was at least making some baskets. Uh, Yeah, that point where you're talking about it was a little bit rough for a bit. But other than that, I mean, great, great game. And honestly, like, this is one of those games where you look back and you look at some of the prevailing narratives, and it's kind of surprising just how unlikely this matchup was. So, um, but before we get into that, so you, you, you know, you covered the game for the daily campus. I, uh, I was fortunately, I wasn't home to watch this. I managed to get out of my house. Uh, I was uh, two years out of UConn at this point, And, uh, me and one of my buddies went down to, uh, the greatest bar in Boston where they had this huge UConn watch party. And, um, Man, dude, it was, I would have probably rather been on campus at stores, but this was a good second best. I mean, this place was packed, uh, four levels deep of UConn fans. And uh, when the final, you know, the final buzzer sounded, somebody dumped a beer on my head. So that kind of tells you what it was like in that place that day. Uh, just a just a hell of a time. Um, yeah, so anyway, let's, uh, why don't we kind of kind of give people the lowdown on kind of how this one played out. So uh, UConn goes into this game, and it is their first season in the American Athletic Conference. Um, you know, they had had the postseason ban the year before, and this team had just had a chip on its shoulder the whole time. Um, they had a respectable season in the, uh, the uh, American, but they could not figure out Louisville. So they, uh, they end up going into the tournament as a seven seed. Uh, and by the time they, you know, they kind of figured it out. They survived a scare against St. Joseph's in overtime in the first round. And then they upset Villanova. They, uh, they beat, um, Iowa state, they beat Michigan state and they beat Florida who everybody had, you know, kind of pegged as the best team in the tournament. Um, but you remember Kentucky. Now they were the number one team in the country in the preseason. And then they promptly stunk in the regular season. Nobody really saw them coming by the time the tournament came. They were 20, uh, they, they were in the number eight seed. Uh, and then what, what happens? They figure it out. They upset undefeated Wichita State, which is, you know, kind of hilarious in retrospect. But at the time, it was pretty, 
uh, alarming when that happens. And then, of course, they, you know, they, they made their run. They beat Louisville. Maybe they did UConn a favor by that. Uh, beat Michigan, beat Wisconsin, set up the uh, matchup of number seven and number eight seeds. Um, kind of weird to think about that one, huh, Tim? That was crazy. I mean, it was such a fun tournament, too. That Kentucky game against Wichita State, I actually had a feeling they were going to win that game. I remember picking Kentucky in my bracket because Wichita State were really good. You know, these Greg Marshall teams have been great, but you just had a feeling that it wasn't going to last, especially coming up against a team like Kentucky that has a chip on its shoulder. And I just I didn't think they'd be able to get all the way, though, you know, to get past Michigan, to get past Wisconsin. I mean, that was special, and it took a lot of great moments for them. But you know, then you look at the UConn side too. Like you said, there were moments throughout that entire tournament where they could have they could have gone out, and especially in that first game against St. Joseph's. You know what happens if Brima doesn't get that and one? So it's you know they both. It's it, I think back and I remember there was a, a comment in the pregame that they're. It's it's not about the fact that these are two a seven seed and an eight seed like these random lower ranked teams getting into the final. It was two elite programs and it was two teams. You know you had one that had a lot of experience in UConn, but had also a lot of inexperience too in these big moments. Guys like Brima and Terrence Samuel, Ryan Boatwright, Lasan Chroma, and then you just had a team of young guys on Kentucky. But they were both great teams, and they developed over the season to get to that point at the right time. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, funny. Like you know, that UConn team was still you know they had the young and inexperienced guys, but you still have seniors like uh, Shabazz and uh, you know Neil Skafai. You know, both of them they uh, they played huge roles in the championship run, and Boatwright obviously too as a junior. I mean, you know, Kentucky. I didn't really appreciate just how young that team was. I mean, I know that's kind of Kentucky's like their whole mo is basically you know bring in a bunch of NBA guys, one and done. And then they all move on. And then the wheel keeps turning. That particular group, though, was, I mean, I don't really know. None of them really panned out in the pros. But, I mean, as a college team, you you know, you watch this game. You're like, oh, my God. Like, look at these guys. They're they're men. Like, you know, James Young, especially, he he's really the only one who showed up in, like, a really big way. And that dunk he threw down on Brima was just when I saw the replay earlier when I was watching it, I was just like, oh, my God. That really was one of the, the most awesome dunks ever. Yeah, it wasn't I really. I think that's where. Uh... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say it wasn't as fantastic in the moment, but it was in, in hindsight, it was yeah. pretty dope. <laughs> and that's the moment where I thought things were gonna fall apart because one of the things that stood out for me was that was Brian's fourth foul. Um, Daniels had three within a couple minutes of that, um, or forty seconds later even, and then Nolan two minutes later picks up his fourth. So you have UConn's three most reliable big guys now in huge foul trouble with eight minutes to play. It's like, oh boy, Kentucky was bigger and stronger at every position. You just felt like they were going to bring the ball to the rim, they were going to keep getting to the free throw line, or they were going to keep posterizing everybody, and they were going to force UConn's bigs out of the game. They didn't. It helped big time that Kentucky was missing free throws left and right. They were only 54% for the game, I think. But those UConn bigs really held their own late in the game, and none of them fouled out, I don't believe. And they... Just 
they did it. <laughs> they held on. I didn't think that they could do it at that point. You know, I have to give uh, Kevin Ollie some credit for this much. There came a point in the final eight minutes where I think he was just like looking at the foul situation and just seeing what was going on with the bigs. Every time one of the bigs tried to do anything around the paint, they were just getting blocked or just they were missing or it was just they were getting dominated. So eventually he was just like, all right, you know what? This isn't working. I'm just going to go super, super small and I'm going to roll with a lineup of Napier, Boatwright, Chroma, Giffey, and Daniels. You know, you're giving up a lot of size, but it worked because those were their best players and they they got the job done. I mean, that's kind of, once he went to that lineup, UConn kind of regained control and Kentucky didn't really ever threaten again in a meaningful way the rest of the, the whole rest of the game. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. You know, there was a point early on in the, or midway through the first half, they went on that 14-2 run. They they cut the lead from a 15-point UConn lead. They went down a couple points at the half, and then they came out and just kept frustrating UConn the entire start of the second half. And pretty much threw the rest of the game a little bit. Like, UConn wasn't as, wasn't as good offensively, but, you know, they had a couple of moments late on where they hit the big shots, and... Everyone just did their part, but defensively, I thought it was just such a great UConn defensive performance. Like you said, going going smaller like that, obviously something we love now. We love the small ball Huskies these days. And the the pressure that Napier put on at the top of the key and Boatwright, they both had three steals in these games. UConn had 17 points off turnovers, and they just every time they got a steal or a turnover, it was out in transition. They were just trying to use their speed and get to the rim and it was a lot of fun to watch going back and remembering oh yeah this is what UConn was good at <laughs> yeah that team that was that's a, that was such a fun team I mean they it's it's I mean in retrospect it's a little bit of a shame that they didn't get to play in like the proper Big East because you know going in as a seven seed that's you know kind of a reflection of the conference as much as anything else and this was still a conference with Louisville too so like you know, that, that, that group would have been kind of fun to see, you know, kind of go up against kind of the classic rivals. But either way, I mean, at the end of the day, they, they got the job done. So um, before we kind of dive into the, the nitty gritty, so this game was played at the uh, the Dallas Cowboys uh, Stadium, which is, uh, from what I can, I've never been there, but from what I can tell, it must be one of the most impressive facilities. What was it like just being in there, especially for a college basketball game of all things? In a way, it was kind of intimidating just because of its size. Um for a basketball game, it was really weird. You know, you figure a basketball game is usually played in front of anywhere from ten to 20,000 people. But we don't have the Final Four. It has to be in a football stadium. And this one set an attendance record, too, with almost 80,000 people in the building. Um, I think I was there for the Final Four games, too, obviously. And I just I didn't really venture far from my seat. And I didn't really get an idea of how big that stadium is. But before the game... I was hanging out with a friend of mine who went to Kentucky at the time. She was in the game for uh, for an outlet down at the University of Kentucky. And we decided to walk to the top of the stadium. So we went all the way to the last row in the upper level. And we looked down and we were just like, oh my gosh. Like, we were we were in the corner up in the up at the highest. We were against the wall. And we were like, how are these people going to see? Other than watching on the video screen, it was just a cavern. But it's this beautiful stadium. For football, I'm sure it's the most amazing thing in the world. Uh, they've done great soccer games there. But for basketball, it just felt so weird. But at the same time, it was like, wow, this is awesome. 
Yeah, I think honestly, you really need to have that video board at a certain point. It's I've read a, I read a stat when it was first opened that you can literally fit all of Ford Field in Detroit inside that building, like the entire like the entire building would fit inside, which is, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's what you're dealing There's so with. Much that you don't see, like we that's that was my workspace for almost the whole week, and underneath, like where the locker rooms and all the like, all the tunnels and stuff are. Even that is like almost its own little town. It's it's unbelievable just how big the whole thing is. Yeah, I think that would have been a cool. Pl- I, I I I'm I envy you for that much. Uh, so when I did the final four, it was in uh, what was I don't know what they call it now. It was at the, at the time referred to as Reliance Stadium in Houston, and that place was cool. Oh, yeah. It was a very nice facility, but you know it's certainly no. Uh, what do they call it now? Is it AT and T uh, Stadium? Is that the official name? Uh, yeah, the one in Dallas. Or yeah, Dallas. Arlington, I should say. Yeah, right. Arlington, right. Or Texas. I don't need. Yeah, we don't need you know a bunch of Texas people to come at, get on our case for the geography, politics, or whatever. Uh, I remember that it was a forty-five minute shuttle from the hotel to the stadium. Oof! Well, that's no good. Yeah. yeah, we were right across the streets. We had the opposite problem. We were right next to the stadium and about forty-five minutes away from virtually anything else, uh, in- including the nearest pizza joint, and you know. That's not what you want when you're a broke college student. So let's get into the game. Um, so we've kind of touched on it a little bit. Uh, one thing I noticed, UConn led this from wire to wire. Uh, they took the lead, the, the opening you know, opening basket. Uh, Kentucky ties it one, like maybe once or twice in the first couple of minutes. And after that, UConn led the entire rest of the way. Um, and, uh, you know, the first like opening minutes, you're thinking this could be a blowout. UConn was crushing Butler, uh, Butler, geez. Uh, they were crushing Kentucky just on both sides of the ball. Lots of turnovers, lots of rebounds. Uh, you know, not, nothing Kentucky was putting up was falling. And, um, you know, the UConn was just kind of taking it to him. I mean, I don't know. What was what was kind of your your perspective of the opening? Uh, we'll say five to ten minutes or so. Yeah, everyone was feeling it. And like you said, it was only two ties, and both of them were before the first media timeout. And UConn just went on a roll. They were suffocating them defensively. Like I said, they were getting out in transition. They were they were just unstoppable, like you said. But for me, at least, you know, it was it was really exciting to see everyone getting hyped up. The student section right in front of me was going nuts. All I could keep thinking about though was how is this going to go wrong? Like it just it was almost so. It's too good to be true that you were thinking there's no way it can stay like this. Well, you're right. It, the, the run eventually did come, but they got some licks in first. Uh, DeAndre Daniels had one of the highlights of the game right out of the gate with that huge uh, dunk on the baseline drive. Uh, you know, Shabazz has, gets a steal, dish ahead to Boatwright. He almost throws down a monster dunk too, but they had to hit him with the hard foul to you know keep a, keep their dignity on that one. Um, Julius Randle had some trouble, uh, had like cramping or some, something was going on with him. So he, he comes out for like a good 10 minutes of the first half too. And then you get a run where uh, Chroma hits a two, Shabazz hits a three, uh, Boatwright had this awesome basket that puts him up, uh, 17 to eight. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the Kentucky is to call a timeout or there might've been a media timeout in any case, they were just, it was just a, just a, a whooping at that point. Then, um, you know, it kind of keeps going for a bit. UConn switches the zone. Um, you know, you, you know, Kentucky's kind of frustrated by that for a bit. Um, Shabazz at one point, like jumped over a dude and like took a crazy fall. That was a little bit scary. And, um, then they CBS comes up with this It's a graphic noting Kentucky had trailed or tied. Um, they were t- either losing or tied at halftime in four of their tournament games. So now, now you're kind of in your head. Okay. Well, yeah, so this is don't, don't count your chickens too fast. 
the run keeps going. Eventually, UConn gets it up to 30 to 15. 15 point game. You know, you're, that's where you want to be. And then the the run starts. Um, you know, James Young hits a three. Aaron Harrison steal and dunk. Uh, five five nothing run right there. Shabazz answers with a three from just like the logo at center court. It was one of his kind of patented Shabazz shots from the parking lot. But then, um, yeah, Kentucky just keeps rolling. Uh, Young and Aaron, Andrew Harrison both with uh, back-to-back threes. And now we are, you know, kind of have a whole new ball game. Um, you know, this was pretty uh, nerve-wracking for me, like, you know, from watching from, you know, TV at the bar stool, like what, what was going on there. But what was kind of your thinking at that point? For me, honestly, I was just so much, I was so worried about the stories that I was going to have to write after the game that I was like, I was trying to make sure I was in a spot where if I had to redo my lead, you know how that is. You're just, you're trying to get yourself in a position where you know the whole story is going to get blown up in a few minutes. So just go along for the ride, you know? Yeah, well, you know, the, the good thing is at least um, y- UConn was able to kind of keep it from getting too out of hand. Uh, they go into halftime leading 35 to 31. And um, I, there was a stat they had that UConn was uh, 25 and three when leading at the half coming in. So, so a team that this team knew how to hold a lead, and uh, their as this game kind of demonstrated, their free throw shooting was really a huge part of it too. And that obviously came into play later. Yeah, remarkable. Didn't miss a free throw. Whereas you know Kentucky was only like I said, 54 percent. That was that was huge. UConn didn't even get to the line that much. I think they only had five trips total. So that was, or they only had 10 free throws. That was massive. Yeah, I got to say, Kentucky did a great job of not fouling. Like so many times where, you know, they would get inside to Nolan or Daniels or somebody. And, you know, those guys would just go up for a shot and the Kentucky guys would just be like, nope. And, uh, you know, usually you're used to just getting, you know, calls on those left and right. Just kind of that's almost the way it always goes. And this one, they were all clean. And then you looked at the replay and you're like, no, yeah, that was, that was clean. Like, you know, it was pretty, a little bit alarming, but still like, you know, just kind of the tenor of the game. UConn had the experience and the guards and the clutch uh, free throw shooting, but Kentucky just always had the, had that little athleticism in their back pocket that you always knew could be a problem if they kind of got, turned it on. Yeah, I always felt, it just seems like this is a game where experience prevailed. If, if these guys from Kentucky were a little older, who knows what would have happened, but when you have level-headed guys like Napier and Gaffey, uh, but right to extend those those older guys, they had been there before. They had won, obviously three of them had won a title already, so they knew what it took. And the rest of the guys were able to just follow their lead, and it was just it wasn't the prettiest, it wasn't it wasn't the best, but they they were able to get it done, and I think that speaks a lot to the experience. Yeah. So. Second half, um, this is the part that was, you know, not a great, I think you described as Butler-esque earlier. Um, so coming out of the gate, Aaron Harrison hits a three, cuts it to a one-point game. And then, you know, I think Boatwright hit a two, and uh, Andrew Harrison had a basket at one point. But the first five minutes, that's pretty much the extent of the offense. Everybody's bricking everything. Nobody can, there's no flow. Nobody can do anything. There's It's sloppy, sloppy, sloppy. And... You know, a little nerve-wracking because it's still basically a one-possession game this entire stretch. Um, and eventually, there gets to be a point where, I want to say it was right around the 12-minute mark, um, Kentucky has its first real good chance to tie or take the lead. Uh, Poitras goes up for a three, misses. This is going to be a theme here. Uh, next thing you know, uh, Boatwright gets a steal, and then, um, 
you know, get, draws the blocking foul. Uh, Daniels gets a bucket inside, back to a four-point game. Kentucky hits two free throws. Giffey hits a three. He's it's his first real uh, contribution to the game offensively. Boatwright two for two free throws, five to nothing run. This you, uh, Kentucky's gone four minutes now without a basket, and then Napier hits a basket, seven nothing run, nine point lead. So feeling pretty good, right? This is yeah. what we've been waiting all this time for. And then I have that sequence. Sorry, I have that sequence written down as one of the most important parts of the game. Because that that was like a one minute stretch there from twelve to a minute, twelve to eleven, and it just felt like that was where things started to turn around. Obviously, a couple seconds later, the fouls come, but that Napier shot was really special to me. I have that one written down specifically because the way he was falling away and he was able to make that shot, he had a few of those in this game, and it was just you know his last game. It seemed like nothing wanted to miss. He didn't. Everything everything was going in for him, and he was not going to lose that game. Yeah, well, before we move on to the next part, which is the part where James Young put Brima on a poster, let's let's talk about Napier a bit because we, we had the pleasure of watching a lot of Shabazz Napier games over the years, and I don't know if there was ever a player who summed up the no, 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 yes shot better than Shabazz Napier. By the time we get to this game... He takes that shot from, you know, the one you just described, like the kind of uh, kind of off balance, kind of not the greatest shot, but he knocks it down anyway. He pulls up for that just cr- like, I don't know what it was, like a 30 foot three pointer at one point in the, you know, a little earlier on. He goes up for those shots and you don't even bat an eye at this point because you're just like, oh, yeah, it's Shabazz. He's probably going to make it anyway. But like that wasn't always the case. I mean, you, you remember there was a couple games like back when he was a sophomore, especially where he would pull up for these stupid shots and you're like, what are you doing? And then he would usually hit him anyway. And you're like, oh, Jesus, like Shabazz, you're going to you're going to give me a heart attack. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It, my favorite my favorite Shabazz shot ever was actually I was at the Daily Campus. It was one of our uh, one of our weekly budget meetings. I'm pretty sure I know what you're about to tell. Go keep going. The Villanova game. Yep. Yep. <laughs> one of the best experiences ever. The, the entire sports section stays to watch the end of the game. Everyone else is trying to have their meetings. Then they start coming out, and it starts to be like 30, 35 people in the middle of the Daily Campus building. And if you've ever been to the Daily Campus, obviously if you work there, you know that work area is really small. So we're, we're touching, like we're shoulder to shoulder. We can barely move in there. And everyone sees that Shabazz shot go up in the last seconds. Everyone screams, no! The ball goes in and we all just start jumping up and down. We almost brought the building down because, you know, we always knew there was a chance of that every day. But that was just amazing. Yeah. That, that stereotypical Shabazz. I actually, there's a shot later in the game, too, that I asked Amita, Amita about after. And he had a, he had a great quote for me, but I'll... I'll get to that when we get there. Yeah. Oh man. I'm. Yeah. That. That's. That's. That was one of my all-time favorites. I was. That was. Uh, <laughs> literally, the ball was in the air long enough that we were able to just vocalize like our. Oh my God. No. Oh, geez. Shabazz, I love you. Hope you're doing well. Um, Yeah. So anyway, just to kind of to get back on track. So the next thing that happens after this run was James Young just just absolutely just dunked on Amita Brima so so badly. Like everybody in the bar I was watching was just like, ooh. Like, you know, if like you're in a, with an opposing crowd and the guy like pulls a dunk that bad and you hear that sound, you know, it's like, oof, like that was a, that was bad. Um, and he got the end one too. So, you know, that was, that was a problem. Uh, Brimo four fouls at this point. 
Uh, not long afterwards, um, Nolan had either three or four. Brian, uh, Daniels was up to three or four. I, I lost track. Everybody was in foul trouble at this point. And um, uh, after a little while longer, um, Kentucky at this point goes on a six to nothing run. And Andrew Harrison has another opportunity to tie the game with a three. He misses it. Like I said, remember the trends. James Young, the only guy in this game for Kentucky who's really hitting anything, knocks down two free throws. Eight to nothing run. 48 to 47, 805 to play. And here's the big one. Aaron Harrison gets a wide open three. If he hits it, they take the lead, and who the heck knows what happens. He misses it, and um, UConn gets possession on a jump ball after the rebound. And um, next thing you know, Shabazz, three-pointer down the other end, and UConn kind of was – it was kind of their game the rest of the way. Um, I remember in the moment – do you do you remember this Aaron Harrison shot, like when it went up? Like were you thinking, oh, my God, like this could be the game, right? Was, was that kind of going through your mind at all? Especially because, to go back to the Final Four game real quick, I the UConn had the first game, and I went back and I wrote my stories, and I'm coming back out of the tunnel to watch the end of the Kentucky-Wisconsin game. And as I'm getting ready to watch my seat, Harrison pulls up and hits one of those threes. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. He'd done it, he'd done it so much in that tournament already. And selfishly, I had Wisconsin in the championship game. I was in this, like, 100-person UConn bracket, and if Wisconsin made the title game, I would have won the whole thing because you know, everyone else had UConn, but if I had gotten Wisconsin to the title game, and he hits that shot, and I'm just like, he's done this so many times already. How did he just do that? And I feel like in the championship game, it just caught up with him. Like He had gotten so many moments of magic in the tournament that he just, he wasn't, he wasn't, I think he had hit a big winner in three straight games or a huge three like that and he couldn't get it to four there was no way i mean it was totally wide open i remember when he like the shot rims off and yukon gets possession and literally i'm thinking like huh wow we just got away with one right there like i mean i don't you know if he hits the shot they're ahead by two so you never know how it plays out it's not it's hardly like that would have been insurmountable but i just think that it said something that yukon never actually let them catch them and Getting, you know, kind of surviving that shot was so, so huge. Because then, yeah, like, next thing you know, uh, Shabazz hits a three. Giffey answers with another, with, um, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little out of order. So Shabazz hits a three. Uh, Kentucky does hit a basket. Then Giffey answers with a three of his own. So basically back-to-back threes. All of a sudden, now UConn's up 54-59, you know, five-point game with about six uh, minutes left. And then, yeah, um, more foul, more foul issues, uh, foul free throw shooting issues for Kentucky. They miss the front end of a one and one. Boatwright beats the shot clock for a two, six point game. Poitras had a pretty awesome putback dunk, but he misses the end one there, so it's still a four point game. Uh, then they had a stat: UConn starts the second half one for eleven, six for ten since, and um, you know, kind of keep going from there. It stretched the lead back to six, and it's kind of about as you know as close as Kentucky ever got. They they never really had another chance to get it to within one possession the rest of the way. No, and they didn't even try to foul in the final minute. That was so they strange. The ball at the top. Yeah, and it felt like they were just hoping that they could get the ball into someone's hands who wasn't Napier. But even when they did, I think it was, was it Nolan late in the game who got the ball? And he just, he, oh, it was Chrome, I'm sorry. And he, he hit them both too because they just weren't missing him. 
But it was so weird to watch them stay off of Shabazz for as long as they did because then that got them in a situation where they had to rush at the end of the game. They had 25 seconds and they were down six. And they just kind of, it felt like they were taking their time. Yeah, it's like, did they, it's did nobody remind them that they, they're down by six points? Like, there was, so with about, um, yeah, basically right under two minutes, the UConn has a possession, and uh, Giffey puts up a shot, doesn't make it, and then, yeah, Chroma just comes flying in from out of nowhere, gets the offensive rebound, and dishes it back out, so reset the shot clock, and UConn has possession. I, I think at that point, like, Kentucky should have really considered fouling. I mean, maybe that possession specifically not quite... But they, that was like really like winning and losing time. And you did not ever get the sense of urgency. Uh, Daniels goes up for a three. He misses. I mean, if, if DeAndre hits that shot, then it's, it's absolutely a, it's, it's good night, Irene, at that point. But, you know, yeah, you know, I think you know, James Young hit one more basket. I mean, seriously, that dude was like the only guy who was really who really showed up in, in a meaningful way. And um, yeah, then just kind of that was it. They, you know, you, you kind of sort of more or less ran the clock out. The Harrisons both missed a couple of threes in the last seconds and the celebration was on such a, a bit of a bizarre ending, but I mean, once it was over, that's kind of all you, all your, it doesn't really matter. Final score, 60 to 54 and you know, good night. Yeah. And then everything just, everyone got to just breathe and think about what that title meant. And after everything that had happened, um, it was just such a special moment to see, you know, Shabazz, you couldn't get him off the floor. Uh, everyone just going nuts. You saw how there were so many UConn fans there. Um, obviously not as many as Kentucky, but just the way everyone was reacting, you knew how much it meant to everyone. Um, I remember just thinking at the moment, um, I had spoken to Niels Gafai two years before at Calhoun's retirement press conference, and I asked him about what that next season was going to be like in the, the tournament ban, and he, he just looks me in the eyes and goes, man, they took something away from me that I didn't I didn't deserve to have it taken away from me, and I'm not going to forget it. And sure, you know, that was what I, that was when everyone's heads, and Shabazz on the stage after the game, he goes, you know, ladies and gentlemen, this is what happens when you ban us. <laughs> and everyone just goes nuts. Dude. Fun fact about that, uh, the... That quote, that's what he said. This is what happens when you ban us. You know, you, you remember the NCAA tournament, they always had a, they had people transcribing all the interviews, press conferences, anything that was on the podium like that. The, the transcript from when Shabazz was on the podium stops at this is what happens. No. Period. Are you serious? They took, they took out the part when you ban us. Wow. That is <laughs> unbelievable. I'm looking through because I, I was looking through the transcript after the game because I'm writing my stories. And I'm like, wait, where is it? <laughs> like, I knew he said it, but I even, I, I remember I, I just looked back at my gamer and I, I didn't have it in there because he, it wasn't in the transcript and I was just worried about getting it misquoted and that, I, you know, the videos weren't up yet. So I didn't really have time to look at that. And but I wrote in the next sentence, like, this is what he was talking about. Jeez. And I, just, I was like, classic NCAA oh my god I that is that is so that's so on brand but that's geez so it's funny I so I didn't actually get to hear that quote until uh much later on because uh the bar I was at kind of turned off the uh 
turned off the volume after the final buzzer and they went to commercial. And, um, you know, by the time it came back, I like saw him on stage accepting the trophy. But, you know, everybody at the bar is basically just like throwing beer at each other at this point. So we're all just like, woohoo. But later on, I get home and, you know, I think um, Matt McDonough or somebody was just like, did you uh, like, what do you think of Shabazz's speech? I was like, oh, I don't know. I didn't I didn't get to hear it. He's like, then I got to look at the replay. I'm just like, Oh my God. He said, what? Oh my God. Yeah. My hero. <laughs> I mean, it had to end that way for him. What a, and you know, he was, he had that pent up frustration from the year before he, he wanted to go out like this. He wanted to, he wanted to bring that title back. He wanted to do what no Husky had ever done before. Uh, I mean, it had to be him. What a special player. And I just, every shot in that game, just something special on every one of them. Um, that three-pointer that you mentioned on the back-to-back with Giffy, he, he pulled up on that one, too. He came over half-court, and he kind of, like, stared down Aaron Harrison. And Harrison took a few steps off him. And Shabazz is just like, all right. And he pulls up, hits the three. And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, that's just classic Shabazz. So that's the one I asked Amita about after the game when I almost tripped over the trophy in the locker room. <laughs> I interviewed him, but that's a whole other thing. Um, and I look at, I look at Amita, I'm like, did you, he seemed like he knew that was going in the whole time. He pulled up from so far back and he just looks at me like I have five heads. He's like, yeah, I knew it was going in. And then he like, he leans into me, he goes, you're from Connecticut. You knew it was going in too. And he like called me out on it. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, you know what I did. <laughs> like I said, I mean, we, we've been seeing it for years at this point, you know, he, uh, Took us a while, but eventually kind of trained us to kind of accept that he's going to take, you know, crazy, ridiculous, occasionally questionable shots, and he's going to make enough of enough of them to make it worth it. Oh, man. He's unbelievable. Yeah. So kind of the aftermath of this game, obviously, in the immediate aftermath, our like Yukon Nation as a whole was basically just like basking in this awesome glow where like we just, you know, showed them all like you all think we're all going to, you know, go away and you know, this, you know shows you that we're not going anywhere. Well, unfortunately, in a way, we it, this turned out to be a bit of a high watermark. Obviously, the, the next couple of years after this game proved to be not so great. But, you know, it's funny, like this game was not that long ago. And, you know, obviously quite a lot has changed. But, you know, UConn now going back to the Big East, uh, it seems like they've turned the corner. They've got a lot of talent coming in. And, um, you know, it feels like it's probably, I mean, who knows when the next time UConn will win a national championship, but it feels like, you know, UConn, have, they'll always have that trophy. They can never take away that memory, but it's nice to know that, you know, that wasn't kind of like the end so much as it was just sort of, I guess we'll say the end of an era and, you know, kind of a, of a one era of UConn basketball and, you know, sort of leading into what we hope will be another good one coming in the years to come. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even really think about it that way, but that was kind of the end of an era because, you know, we were all still wondering at that point, what's to come? And it felt like, you know, those were, those were still Calhoun guys for the most part. So it was like, they had to end the Calhoun era, the, the big East era. And now the door opened into that, into that new age of UConn basketball. And obviously things didn't go as well with Kevin Ollie and the, you know, the opponents weren't, we wanted them to be in the conference. Are we, it kind of hurt our recruiting. It's been a rough couple of years, but there's a vibe around this team now. 
And, you know, maybe we don't win a national championship in the next few years, but the vibe around this team, the the chemistry on the team, the players that they've got, the players that are coming in, and Dan Hurley, obviously, there's a it really feels like this is a team that can do it. Absolutely. Well, let's um let's move on ahead. But before we kind of dive into the next segment, I want to just take a quick break just to give a quick shout out to our uh, good friend uh, Melanie Diesel, uh, former Daily Campus uh, partner of both of ours, uh, you know, editor in chief uh, my senior year um, in 2011, 2012. She just wrote a book, uh, really a great book. Uh, it's called The Content Fuel Framework. Um, it's a how to generate unlimited story ideas, a great resource for anybody in marketing or content creation or anything like that. Um, you know, just came out recently, a uh, really great read and, um, it's been just blowing up all over, uh, kind of the, that, you know, the kind of the content creator world. Um, you know, as obviously I, it's my dream to write a book someday. So, you know, huge shout out to Melanie, anybody out here listening, you know, support your fellow Huskies, give this book a look, uh, highly recommend it. And, um, yeah, I don't know, just, uh, that's, uh, it's really cool. cool to see Huskies doing cool things, right? Yeah, that's awesome. And you know what? I was... I started at the Daily Campus in 2011-12, that, the spring semester. So I didn't get a chance to work with you and Mel as much as I would have liked to. But in my short time with you guys, I realized when Mel, when Mel says something or writes something, listen to Mel. She knows what she's doing. Very, you know, been been really successful these past few years. So anyway, uh, so that's our little uh, little UConn plug for the day. So let's uh, get into kind of what stood out. So, um, Tim, when you rewatch this game, because uh, obviously you didn't see the broadcast uh, in, in, at the first time out, what stood out to you when you first uh, kind of rewatched the game? Uh, I think, honestly, a couple of the things that I mentioned, the way they were they were so good defensively, the, the speed with which they played, it was it was kind of like, a small, quick team against a big, strong team, and the small, quick team had the experience on their side. You saw the way Boatwright and uh, Napier got so acrobatic, the way they were stealing the ball. There was one where Boatwright did the 360 one-handed catch to steal the ball. Uh, Shabazz was just throwing his body in the way, turning on a dime to get the ball and like keeping it in somehow. It was amazing. And then... Again, what what happened late in the game with the foul trouble, uh, the foul trouble of the bigs, and they were able to adjust. Uh, for me, uh, I, I'm kind of I thinking back. I'm surprised the way Ollie was able to adjust and go small, because I always in the later years I always kind of questioned his coaching decisions. But that was a great move, and uh, just the vibe around the crowd, the way UConn Nation turned up is one of those things. I you always know about it. You don't really sometimes you don't really appreciate it. Just especially when so many come down to Texas, and I remember some of the problems that the students had getting down there. It was, you know, there were, um, some schools were providing much more help to their students than others, and UConn turned up. They did, yeah. I was a uh, they. They really showed up for that game. Um, when in in Houston, when uh, a couple of years before for the the Butler game, I, I do remember thinking like, well, you know, the, these other schools like VCU just brought so 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 many people. Butler for their student population had a ton of people, and Kentucky was in the final four then too. So obviously they showed up big. Uh, admittedly, it's difficult to get to Texas from UConn. That's just a fact. I mean, it's like you can take a bus, but I mean, you're looking at like a 30 plus hour bus ride, you know, playing tickets. There was are... a group that did a bus trip too. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. So it was uh, one of our daily campus friends, Jimmy Onofrio 
was uh, was on that bus, and it, it was quite an adventure from what I remember. I So I didn't ever do a bus like that for a sporting event, but um, when I was a sophomore, we uh, did a 30-hour bus ride from Connecticut to New Orleans for a service trip. And uh, yeah, I don't really ever want to do that again. So shout out to everybody who kind of you know took the took the long the longest bus ride ever. Because man, I mean, it looked great on TV. I mean, so many the, the student section was impressively full. It was pretty pretty nice. Yeah, I got to say there was um, the day before too, or was yeah it was the day before uh, the women were playing in the final four. You know, we we won a double title that year, and so there was a there was a party at the team hotel. Uh, the UConn Alumni Association put on a party. I actually it was during a Bruce Springsteen concert. I'm not a big Bruce guy, but I so I skipped the free concert and I went to the I went to the party, and it was packed in there. And it just you know, you know big names, former players, students, just everyone together. The band was there. They were playing, and even for that game, just watching on the TVs in the hotel bar, the place was going nuts. And I, there was one point where. Um, Antrick Claver, former member of the '99 team, one of the one of the smaller role players, jumps up on a partition and does a UCONN chant, and the thing just echoes through the hotel. I'm like this is UConn fans are something. Yeah, man, dude, I can't wait till the next time UConn is like makes a deep run. That's just gonna, it's I miss it. <laughs> it's gonna be so much fun. <laughs> Um, a couple, a couple things that stood out to me, uh, no Tyler Olander. I was a little bit surprised in the rewatch that he didn't actually get into this game at all, especially considering just the foul trouble. Uh, I know that by the kind of the tournament, he, his, his role had sort of kind of lessened to a certain degree, but I, I did, I, I was a little bit surprised to see that he didn't even show up at all. Um, one other kind of interesting thing I, I noticed, uh, just, um, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit, um, with Boatwright making that crazy acrobatic play. But um, there was a, there were a, yeah, there was a bunch of those. Like it looked like there was like a, a replay where it almost looked like he was making some kind of one-handed catch in the end zone, like he was like trying to pick somebody off, like for, you know, like in, like in football or something. And they had the sky cam going, so it even had the same camera angle and everything. Oh man, it was crazy. I think that's actually the one that's in my head right now. And there were, you know, there were times where Kentucky was trying to get back in it, but you, there were a couple of situations where UConn would make a shot come back down and then Boatwright would make a big defensive play and they'd go the other way. Just stepped up in the biggest way. Yeah. Uh, one more on this that stood out to me. Um, Shabazz and uh, Boatwright almost had a fist fight on the court like twice. Um, literally like there were two separate occasions where they're like, just like, you know, just shoving each other. Like, dude, what the hell are you doing? Like there's the first, the part where, um, Shabazz has the ball and Boatwright kind of does the wrong, runs the wrong set. And Shabazz literally just shoves him and almost knocks him to the ground. It's like, dude, what the heck are you doing? Go over there. <laughs> and oh then, and then there was an out of bounds play where there's like a ball kind of bouncing out, out towards the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, sideline and they both go to jump to like try to chuck it out to the other. And then, like in midair, they both look at each other, like, "Dude, come on, man!" Like, <laughs> they were always kind of like that—those brothers, uh, the old brother, little brother—just clash all the time, and just they—they they love each other, but they're fighting, and it's just—they were—they were so funny. Yeah. Uh, that that pushing incident though was another part where you're like, "Oh boy, this is where things are going to go south," because that was early in the second half, and Kentucky was starting to get back in it. And you could just tell that they had UConn rattled a little bit. I love the slow motion replay of that, though. The one where you can see the bench behind them. 
I think it was Chroma who was on the bench, and his face just goes like, oh, wow. <laughs> it's like, oh, something's about to go down. But then you see Rodney Purvis in uh, the third row the behind the bench because, you know, he was, he was a transfer at the time, and he's just stone-faced. Like, he's just like – He's, he doesn't react to it at all. He's just like, it was almost like he expected it. Yeah, I, I think Ollie after the game, had, somebody asked him about it, and he was just like, man, like, can you guys just like, n- please not do this, like, literally in front of 80,000 people? Can you at least wait till the timeout? <laughs> uh, that, that cracked me up. Um, I love it. So let's talk about favorite sequences. So I have a couple. Um, so DeAndre Daniels' dunk was awesome. The fact that it happened so early was really a, a trendsetter, I thought. Um, and then there was a point in a, kind of a, with six minutes left or so in the first half where Niels goes and he pulls a Paul Pierce move where he fakes uh, Poitras up into the air, draws the foul, and then he just kind of walks away just like, come on, I can't believe you just fell for that. <laughs> uh, those, those guys are just... You had a feeling at times like that where they were just going to do whatever they needed to do to win. Yeah. Do you have any uh, anything that stood out to you there? Uh, we did touch on a couple that I that I noted. Um, you know, two minutes in with the Daniels baseline dunk, and then the next possession, Nolan makes a great defensive play. I, yeah, Phil Nolan started that game. We we talk a lot about Phil Nolan, and you know he he had his moments. He was a starting center on a team that won a national championship. Let's respect the man. He he, he played he good minutes good. too. He did, and. That early play was huge because they go the other way and Giffy does that kind of like step over transition layup, and that's when you were kind of like, all right, things this might this might get out of hand like you were saying. There was that vibe early on, but you know, obviously it didn't go that way. Um, I talked about or we talked about the twelve to eleven minute mark in the second half. Uh, Giffy three, Boatwright steal, then he gets a foul, and then they played such suffocating defense at the other end that they forced Kentucky into a turnover where the pass came from like the top of the three-point line and it ends up a couple rows deep and then they come the other way and that's when Napier hits that acrobatic shot so they were just they never went on a huge run they they didn't really it didn't get out of hand at times but you just had a feeling that they could turn it on at any moment and they were never gonna truly let Kentucky get back yeah, uh, I want to give Phil Nolan one more shout out because he had one other play I had on my list. There was a play in the first half. I I I think it was the first half where it was one of those plays where he goes up for a basket and it kind of gets dominated, but the ball kind of bounces down and it's a bit of a scrum. Phil goes to the floor, grabs it, and he just chucks it off of one of the Kentucky guys' legs, and uh, they maintain possession. That was yeah. I don't know. There's little plays like that. I, I love it when the, those guys step up. I mean, especially in his case, because like right at that moment, it's like he's probably thinking, oh, come on, not again. Like, the, like what am I what do I have to do to beat these guys? And then it's like, all right, well, at the very least, I can take advantage of them just being giant sequoia trees and just huck it off their friggin legs and try to salvage something here. It's amazing. He didn't have he didn't have any points. He had one offensive rebound. He got into serious foul trouble. And he had they counted that defensive place a steal early on, and he didn't really have, he didn't fill up the stat sheet other than that. But his nineteen minutes, he was he had some moments, and just like all of these guys, you know, whether it was Terrence Samuel or Lasan Chroma, obviously Amita had a couple of big big moments coming off the bench, but he didn't even score. 
most of the scoring was the big three, Gafai, Boatwright, Napier. Uh, but everyone who got on the court, they had some moment that ended up being an important in the game. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to go through a couple of stats that stood out to me. Uh, before we do that, I guess let me just kind of hit up the box score. So um, in this game, it's like you kind of just mentioned, it was most of the damage was this, like kind of the big three. Uh, Shabazz, uh, he led the team with 22 points, uh, you know, six rebounds, three assists, three steals, um, only one foul, uh, four, four free, th- uh, excuse me, four three-pointers. So a little bit of everything. Uh, Daniels, uh, actually, no, sorry, uh, Boatwright, 14 points. Uh, four rebounds, three assists, three steals, kind of the same kind of a uh, stat line, more or less. Giffy, 10 points. He kind of did most of his damage late, five rebounds. Uh, Daniels had eight points, uh, two blocks, six rebounds. So a pretty uh, even even kind of spread on that sense. Uh, Lasan Chroma, I should note, had six rebounds, which is pretty impressive too. He only he played 20, uh, 20 solid minutes and you know kind of made the the bit the rebound at the end was really the one that sealed it. Um, for Kentucky, uh, uh, James Young was uh, twenty points, seven rebounds. Uh, he he was uh, eight for nine from the free throw line. The rest of the team combined to hit. Five the rest five free throws. Um, the whole, I think let me let me try to do the math here. Five for fifteen. I guess they would have been the whole rest of the team. So James Young he showed up. The rest of them, um, you know, Julius Randall had ten points, uh, six rebounds. The the Harrisons had uh, um, uh, eight eight and seven points respectively. So you know, kind of a weirdly underwhelming performance by Kentucky. But you know, their talent almost let them kind of stay in the game. Um, so anyway, that, that's kind of the, 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 the box score spread. But what I wanted to get to, would you care to guess uh, who won the rebound battle? I feel like that was, that was a Kentucky win. It was, it was tight, but it was pretty close. You it, would, was, it was Kentucky. You would be surprised to hear that UConn actually out-rebounded Kentucky 34-33. to Watching that game, I would have guessed that UK, uh, Kentucky would have won that battle 40-30. to <laughs> I think that that's, that makes it even more amazing. Because like we've been saying, that Kentucky team had a height advantage and a strength advantage at every position. Um, except maybe on Terrence Samuel, who I still remember looking like a tiny like fullback almost. Just the muscles on that guy. But they, they were much more imposing team physically than UConn. And that, that says a lot. So here's another one that might surprise you. Uh, Kentucky, believe it or not, had five blocks. It felt like he had 25 blocks. Yeah. UConn had four. How was that possible? <laughs> I, I was really surprised looking at that. Uh, I just pulled up the box score and I'm looking at that now because going through and looking at that replay, it felt like they would have had more. Uh, oh, man. Daniels with two. Brima had one and Gafai had the other. Brima had a big one too. So, I mean, that was... That's pretty crazy, especially when you talk about a team that loves to block shots. Yeah, I'm, and I'm just thinking, like, when I watched the game, I expected Kentucky to have a lot more than they did. Like, you know, just from the eye test, it was like they complete their bigs completely dominated the game. But, you know, the stat sheet was like, eh, meh, not, it was a little closer than you thought. I don't know. Just it stood out to also, me. They did a really good job of keeping Kentucky away from the rim for a lot of the game. The the perimeter de- defense was really, really solid. Yeah, yeah. A lot of their big uh, like plays around the hoop were kind of putbacks. I guess now that you mention it, there weren't really a whole lot of just big boying kind of, uh, you know, just 
uh, post play, really. There, there wasn't a lot of post play in this game for either team, really, was there? No, I don't think so. Uh, a lot, you know, the guards really had a lot to say about UConn in that game. Um, and then, you know, they, like I said, they did such a good job keeping Kentucky away from the rim. Yeah. All right, let's go into uh, broadcast beefs. Do we have any broadcast beefs, or do we feel like the announcers did all right? Uh, for me, obviously, I didn't get the. I wasn't watching the game um, from on a, on the broadcast. But going back, you know, the CBS crew usually does a really good job, especially on the biggest day of the year. Uh, for me, that last call, the down into the hands of Boatwright with five seconds. And then, you know, the most improbable tournament run and the Huskies are in basketball heaven again. I love that. Every time I hear it, I, I just get so excited. And, you know, it's part of the, uh, it's part of the intro at, uh, at the UConn Games now when uh, the guys are walking out on the court and they see the banners. And I always say it to myself when, uh, when they're playing it. And I, my girlfriend just stares at me like, can you stop? <laughs> Yeah, well, Jim Nance has come up with some good ones over the years. Uh, he 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 always does a good job. So their crew for this game was Jim Nance, Greg Anthony. They got Steve Kerr, uh, which was kind of nice. He he did uh, some you know pretty some good commentary. Uh, Tracy Wolfson on sideline, she did a great job. Uh, I'm always I always get a kick out of seeing what they promote during the game, like those kind of when the guys at the free throw line, like what's the TV show that they sort of uh, have the little quick promo. Oh, yeah. They had uh they had NCIS which is like obviously they did but they also had uh Lindsay Lohan on Two Broke Girls. She was the special guest star for whatever that that night's episode which is um I mean this is 2014 so this is like well like Lindsay Lohan is very much like we're very far from her uh her uh, parent trap uh, Mean Girls peak so I don't know that kind of cracked me up. It's like Lindsay Lohan begins on two broke girls. What are we doing? What are we doing here? Uh, a couple other things I thought that was funny. They had a couple of times where they kind of uh, went to the crowd and did you know? Oh hey, here's some famous people. So one of them, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, watching the game together, which was um, I don't know it's kind of funny and kind of quaint to see you know those two guys kind of in 2014, obviously you know very far removed from our current political reality. And then um, another one, this this one really kind of cracked me up. Tony Romo and Jason Witten got a little shout out. And uh, little did Jim Nance know that he was uh, looking at his future, um, you know, his future broadcast partner. Oh, yeah. They, uh, now that I, re- I remember them being there, um, they, they showed him on the video board there. And they, they showed both presidents, like you mentioned. That was, that was really cool to see them together. Uh, they actually showed them while Daughtry was singing the national anthem, which was... Uh, which was interesting. There's a throwback right there. I remember when he was on American Idol, back when people watched American Idol. Yeah, he was one of my favorites back in the early days. I, yeah, he was probably one. Yeah. I mean, we don't need to turn this into an American Idol podcast, but he no. was always the one I remember kind of standing out the most and being the most angry when he didn't win. Um, anyway, um, let's let's kind of get let's kind of wrap this up. Uh, so who who was the top dog uh, in in your opinion? Who won who uh, won this game? Quote you know so to speak. Are we talking as a player? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, we know oh, UConn won the game. Like yeah. who was? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Who's who's the who's the who was the uh, the MVP? It was Shabazz. I, there, there's no getting around that. Fifty percent shooting, uh, amazing defensively. Twenty two points, and the catalyst of that team. They're not there without him. They, who knows what that team is without Shabazz. Uh, he he was the guy who carried them the whole way. Obviously, the Florida game earlier in the year, 
made you really think about what this team could be, especially if he's going to be hitting the clutch shots. And he he almost willed them to that title. So for him to be the star of the game that last that last time out, go home the next day and see his name up in the up in the rafters, that was pretty cool. Yeah, you know, there's no doubt. I mean, it's that was Shabazz's team and that was Shabazz's crowning moment. And obviously, you know, not that he needed not that he needed anything, any bonus points, but stepping to the podium and just delivering that mic drop was just the, the, the cherry on top of a career full of awesome, memorable moments. So Shabazz, thank you for, thank you for all that. It was, you know, a pleasure to watch you. And, um, yeah. So, uh, cool when, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. He got on the ladder and he went to go cut that net down. I have, I, I remember taking pictures where he's wiping back tears and you could just see what it meant to him to, to get up on that ladder again and cut down that net. And then, you know, after the game, all the, all his teammates wanted to talk about was him. Uh, Omar Calhoun told me that he was, he was basically on Kemba's level and to do the things that he did was unbelievable. Amida was, couldn't stop talking about him. I even, I was talking to Ray Allen after the game and he was like, you know, you can, we all have different ways of talking about who the who the best players in program history are. You can't like he wasn't gonna rank anybody, but he just wanted like he just couldn't stop raving about Shabazz and the way he carried that team too. So he he was the guy for everybody, and everyone was so happy that he got his second title. It was yeah, it was it was just something else. All right, Tim. So uh, before we wrap this up, uh, there's a little bit of uh, news today uh, in the you know UConn UConn world. Uh, so we're recording this on Thursday, um, March 19th, which should have been the first day of March Madness, but you know cor- coronavirus quarantine. So that's that's how it is. Uh, so instead, we we got some news. Uh, Al Tariq Gilbert has officially entered the transfer portal. So not not unexpected, but you know definitely, you know a little. It, you wish you wish it had gone better for him, but I think ultimately, you know, I think everybody would agree it's probably best that he gets a fresh start. Uh, real quick, what what were your thoughts on Al Tariq and just kind of his uh, his impact and his legacy at UConn? I just wish it worked out better for him. You know, I I actually saw him on campus during his official visit, and you could tell he was the most excited guy in the world. He couldn't wait to get on campus, and a couple of days later, I think he committed. You could tell he was ready to be a Husky, and the way those first two seasons went, it was like, come on. Like the the two early injuries, it just it, it didn't seem fair. Like this guy had worked so hard, he he could have been such an amazing player for this program, and he tried he tried so hard, and I think at times he tried too hard when he came back. His this past year driving to the like the way he tried to drive to the rim, and make all these plays by himself, even when he had like four guys trying to stop him. He there were a lot of times where he could have made smarter decisions and but it, it you know we had a lot of we had a lot of talks about Altari Gilbert this year and we saw we saw him have to take a step away from the team so there's a lot going on there and it's he can have a fantastic season wherever he goes and I feel like he said close to home one of the first one of the first names that came to mind for me was Georgia State and apparently that's one of the teams that's reached out to him early on. I feel like a place like that or another place in Georgia or the area, I think he could thrive. And I think he still has a chance to have a really big season as a college basketball player, and he deserves it. 
I, I hope I hope you're right. I hope he I hope wherever he lands, he does well. He deserves to be remembered fondly at first time at UConn, even if obviously for mostly for reasons beyond his control, it didn't work out. Um, some good news, though. We also got an update on uh, Tyler Polly and a cook, a cook uh, injury wise. Uh, Tyler Polly is apparently doing well in his recovery and is expected to be back in time for the start of the season. And a cook, uh, Hurley said, is uh, hoping to be back by the start of Big East play. So that would be, I mean, that'd be a huge lift to have a cook back for the, I mean, they could probably make do without him for the first month and a half or so, but they, they definitely could use him for the Big East play. Um, so, yeah, especially if they have Polly back. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating to see kind of what the lineup's going to end up looking like, you know, because uh, I think, you know, uh, RJ Cole and Book Knight are probably the only locks. And then beyond that, you can kind of imagine a whole number of combinations of possible starting lineups, but that's kind of a, a good problem to have. Like, it's like, wow, we have a lot of good players who, who, who knows, who knows how it's going to work out. Oh, the big East is in trouble. So why don't we leave it there? Uh, so Tim, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks so much again. Uh, so for everybody listening, uh, t- uh, Tim, do you want to plug, uh, plug anything while, uh, you know, while we have you? Um, not really. I'm just I'm working at ESPN doing some soccer videos. So if you ever see uh, any soccer content over on that website, uh, ESPN.com, just know I probably worked a little bit on it or I'm on the team that does all that stuff. Nice. So, but Mac, thank you so much for having me on. It's such a cool idea to do this show. And it's I can't wait to see more like the, the games you already talked about are some of the best in UConn history. And I have so many fond memories. I can't wait to reminisce about some of them. Yeah, dude. Uh, well, I'll have you on for a few more. Uh, real quick, uh, where can people find you on uh, social media? I am on Twitter at Tim underscore Fontenot. I also, uh, I'm on Instagram, just usually posting whenever I go to a UConn game, actually. Um, at T Fontenot, it's locked, but I, if I see a UConn fan, I'm very likely to accept. All right, very good. Well, if you guys uh, want to follow me on Twitter, uh, you can find me at Mac Cerullo, M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. Uh, my DMs are open, so if you have any thoughts, feel free to hit me up by messaging. Uh, I also uh, set up a, an email, uh, yesuconpodcast at gmail.com. So any feedback you have, please uh, let me know. Uh, at this point, the uh, podcast should hopefully be available on all, all streaming platforms. Uh, I've, at the time I'm recording this, it's not quite up on uh, Apple Podcasts yet, but I'm hoping that by the time you all hear this, it's there. So please subscribe, and when the time comes, please leave a five-star review. Uh, we want five stars like we want five-star recruits, so let's uh, make that happen. And, um, yeah, looking forward to bringing some more to you. And, uh, Tim, you know what the nice thing is? Like It's like you said, we're, we're doing some of the best games ever right, right at the top. But when I did the list, I came up with, like, a good 30 or 40 games. And they're just like, man, like, these are all great games. So there's, there's no shortage of material, that's for sure. It's awesome. I remember a couple years ago when I was at the UConn blog, I did a, like, top 25 of games that I've been to in person. I was like, man, some of these that are at the bottom – could really be way higher up. Some just some unbelievable games in UConn history. Absolutely. And we'll bring them all to you in due time. So, uh, yeah, so thank you all for listening, and uh, you guys all have a good one, okay? Uh, we'll catch you all next time. <laughs> <laughs>